This episode of Long Reads is brought to you in association with Pluto Press. Pluto have developed a new list of audiobooks for some of their most popular titles. One audiobook you can buy from Pluto is A Feminist Theory of Violence, A Decolonial Perspective by Françoise Vergès. Angela Davis has praised the book as a robust decolonial challenge to carceral feminism. If you buy at least one audiobook from tiny.one slash jacobin before the end of December, you'll be entered for a draw to win one of three sets of the entire list. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. The song we're listening to should need no introduction. This version of the Marseillaise was performed at the World Cup final in Paris in 1998. Ten years earlier, Dutch football fans belted out their own national anthem at the European Championship final in Germany. The Dutch song Wilhelmus has one crucial thing in common with the Marseillaise. They're both products of a revolutionary struggle. The Dutch revolt of the 16th century defeated the Spanish monarchy, the great European superpower of its day. It may not be as well remembered as the English Civil War or the French Revolution, but it was a watershed moment in the development of modern Europe. Our guest today is Pepin Brandon. He's an historian at VU University in Amsterdam, and the author of War, Capital and the Dutch State. This is the first part of a two-part interview. What was the social context and the system of political rule in the Netherlands during the period leading up to the Dutch Revolt? So we're talking about a revolt that took place in the second half of the 16th century that covered an area that that was called the Low Countries that consisted of 17 different provinces with all slightly different sort of social systems and and systems of political rule, roughly divided into two territories, the Northern Netherlands that coincides with what today is the Netherlands and the Southern Netherlands that roughly coincide with what um, today is Belgium. And this revolt evolved over a very long period, various decades, started out as a classical revolt, ended more as regular warfare, which led to an independent state in these northern provinces that became the Dutch Republic, what is now the Netherlands, and led to a defeat of the revolt in the southern Netherlands, which remained part of the Habsburg Empire. So these 17 provinces had been united under Habsburg rule fairly recently, only in the um, in the 1540s, and were in many ways an essential part of, um, of the Habsburgs' imperial ambitions, uh, even when they were quite far-flung provinces. I mean, the core of the, um, of, of the empire was the Iberian Peninsula, but at the same time, these, this was the most urbanized area of 16th century Europe. It, these provinces, uh, or at least the seaborne provinces, were extremely trade-oriented, very, very wealthy. 
And for an absolutist state like the Habsburg state with massive imperial ambitions, continuous warfare across Europe, tax income from these commercial provinces were absolutely key to their position of power. So during the time of their rule, the Habsburgs experimented with the various ways in which to gain firmer political control over these provinces, ultimately also for economic purposes, for for making it easier to levy taxes, and and on the other hand also to avoid the kind of of turmoil that was then raving across Europe, which was partly religious, sort of the, the Reformation spreading and partly political also sort of various forms of local rebellion to uh, to establish new states or independence often often then sort of intersecting with this with the reformation so that was a difficult um, ambition for the um, Habsburgs but also a very promising one in the sense of the sort of the the wealth and influence that these low countries provinces represented i mean to also give a perspective to that antwerp at that point of time the most important trading city of the southern netherlands was a city of a hundred thousand inhabitants which was a very large city for the 16th century it was a center for the european trade and for important parts of the extra-european trade, especially Atlantic trade. So to give just one example, Antwerp became the uh, the main center for the 16th century European sugar trade. So uh, sugar was produced in uh, the uh, Portuguese-Brazilian plantation colony. So it was produced under Iberian control. But then for the trade in sugar across Europe, they needed merchants from the southern Netherlands, in this case, uh, in, in this case, Antwerp. Right. So that gave these provinces an enormous importance, but also a sense of um, self-worth that very early on led to all kinds of opposition movements that tried to increase these, the sort of uh, independence and local autonomy of various sections of the Dutch elites. Now, that led to a very explosive brew, especially when intersected with the rise of uh, all sorts of oppositional religious movements, which came to a head in the 1560s, first in the form of extensive fissures within the state apparatus, oppositions forming among both the higher and the lower nobility, often with substantial support from wealthy urban uh, merchant elites. And then these fissures evolved into complete ruptures when lower class people started to to take the opportunity and to start push for their own demands, especially push for the end of um, religious persecution. And that that then led to a a series, actually, of uh, interlinked, revolts. Picking up on that point about the Reformation, is it fair to say that the revolt was primarily motivated by religion, at least in its opening stages? In a certain sense, yes, and in a certain sense, no. But it, it, it's, it's good to say that this has been a point of contention 
from the time of the revolt itself, right? Whether this was a revolt primarily for religion, whether it was uh, a revolt for independence, so sort of, of course, primarily politically motivated. And there has been vicious debate over this continuing up to the present. Mainstream Dutch historiography has classically been divided into two sections, which actually were connected to two main stories that the nation has told about itself since the 19th century. So one conservative version of historiography claimed that this was a revolt uh, for religion. So uh, that was, of course, the point of view of Protestant historians. But then there were often equally sort of conservative and nationalist historians who said, no, no, the, the, the prime mover was liberty. Where liberty has this complicated sort of uh, Janus-faced aspect to it, because when 16th century people referred to liberty, they meant autonomy or they meant something very particularist. They meant they meant our ancient freedoms, so the um, privileges of a city that granted certain city freedoms against the nobility or against uh, against a monarch, that was considered freedom. And that certainly was an important element in the revolt. But against that, sort of liberty can also um, mean the liberty of the nation against a foreign power, in this case, uh, um, uh, Spain. Now, that became, of course, a very important perspective for 19th century nationalists who said, okay, here is the a revolt fought for freedom that is the basis of this uh, nation. But it's also fair to say that at the start of the revolt, no one expected this to be the outcome, an independent nation, and no one would define freedom in that sense. So in, in some ways, sort of this heavy uh, label of liberty when uh, you interpret it as national independence, that, that certainly was an anachronism. And then, interestingly enough, there uh, only has been a handful of radical historians of the Dutch um, revolt who, in the fashion of uh, much of 20th century Marxist historiography, claimed, no, no, the, the, the prime mover was economic. The revolt broke out as a lower class revolt and a prime mover were high grain prices and acute hunger. And that was the thesis of a very, very interesting guy. And I I hope we can come back to him, a um, German Jewish refugee who, while hiding from the Nazis, wrote a uh, book called uh, Hunger Year 1566, which was um, posthumously published, Kuttner, uh, Erich Kuttner himself, he was um, caught by the Nazis and murdered in uh, in Mauthausen, the concentration camp. But he put up this very firm argument, no, no, it was um, economic reasons, primarily sort of urban poverty that led to the outbreak of the revolt. Now, that had, has been the cause for a lot of... Um, discussion and responses and and through actually through that uh, sort of vicious attacks on Kuttner it has remained although marginal an, an influence on thinking about the revolt because um, because that factor since Kuttner's books ha- has always had to be included in these debates my own perspective on this is is um, first of all 
that I do think that um, the outbreak of the revolt cannot be seen sort of uh, apart from this sort of intervention of the lower classes in political life and that obviously religious was um, was very uh, important in that as well as material circumstances. There's a lot still in Kuttner's thesis, but he was also a representative of a quite mechanistic sort of materialist approach to politics of rebellion that was on vogue in, um, in, among Marxist historians in the 1930s. So for him, there was this stark opposition. There were the ideal motivations, which were religious, and then there were the real and material motivations, which were which were economic reasons which had to do with grain prices and hunger. And I think that approach is um, is problematic. And one reason why it's problematic is that I think it tends to dematerialize the role of the church in 16th century politics. So, of course, an attack on the church and on sort of ruling religion was not some sort of idealistic motive up, up in the air, sort of purely theoretical it was an attack on one of the main power structures behind the 16th century state. And in many ways, the power structure that people encountered most immediately within their daily lives. They had to kneel for a priest every Sunday. I think that is a material fact. That is something that really sort of impinges on how people live their lives. The, the church, the Catholic church was an incredibly rich institution and many, much of the sort of the anger expressed in popular pamphlets, in Reformation tracts, in the utterances of people who uh, took part in the rebellion and were later sort of brought to trial. Much of their anger was against the wealth of the church. Much of their anger was against the crass materialism of the church. And I think there is the place where an outburst against inequality can become sort of linked to starkly felt religious motives. Right. So we're talking about a revolt that, that went through various stages. And the first stage was a wave of iconoclastic fury that uh, broke out in 1566 and continued into 1567. And iconoclastic furies mean basically sort of that Catholic churches were adorned with all these um, statues of saints, images of Christ, etc. A Protestant religion turned against that and uh, largely sort of lower class people would start breaking into churches and smashing the images to pieces. There was a long sort of growing of this rebellion in the form of uh, all sorts of um, very small scale everyday kind of resistance long before this iconoclastic fury broke out. I, I did a lot of research myself on the stages, uh, the immediate stages before the um, before the revolt in the um, textile city of Leiden in the northern Netherlands. And one of the most fascinating things that I found, and one of the, the <laughs> being someone who uh, went through um, uh, quite a lot of uh, sort of uh, political activism and protest myself. One of the most recognizable thing was these people standing up in, in churches, walking up to the front, 
taking the host from the priest, throwing it on the ground and stamping on it, shouting, if this is your God, then why doesn't it act on it? So, and the criticism of this, of for example, the practice of the host, where in Catholic doctrine, sort of the, the Christ is present um, in that piece of bread, as the Protestants would say, was part of that sort of onslaught on this idea of a materialist church that that uh, that assumes God is present in things and in earthly wealth, right? So you have these incidences of people stamping on the host or tearing it apart, or and I, I find that that incredibly interesting because there's in the context where the Catholic Church is everywhere, where people were burnt at the stake for resisting it, this was an incredibly brave form of what I would call direct action. It has this sort of anarchist, spontaneous element to it of trying to rupture the ease of the onlookers. But that that attains a mass, a mass scale. So yes, that is a long-winded way of saying, I think religion was crucial to the outbreak of the revolt, but religion in a deeply, deeply sort of religious society in which the church is part of the state is not this ideal up-in-the-air theoretical idealistic issue. It is it is part of a structure that forms people's life against which they, they, they rebelled. What political and military character did the revolt assume? I, so I think it's, it's, it's good to summarize very, very briefly the main stages of this revolt. So the revolt started from that opposition within the ruling class, let's, uh, let's say, from different angles to this wave of iconoclastic fury in which tens of thousands of people, especially across uh, uh, Flanders and then in more organized ways also in the, in the northern Netherlands, participated, where you have a situation of basically nationwide or almost nationwide revolt. The Spanish state responded to that, although it's important to say that already before that, the higher nobility in uh, in much of the low countries actually turned against the rebels and tried to suppress them. But for the um, extremely devout Catholic monarch uh, Philip II, that was uh, that was not enough. So he sent an army headed by a strongman, the Duke of Alva, one of the hardliners within the Spanish um, uh, court, one of the real, real sort of traditionalist among the Spanish uh, nobility. And, and he was sent to basically crush every every aspect of that revolt. Many of the higher nobility of the Netherlands thought they could compromise with uh, Alva, especially because they had already shown that they were not entirely on the side of this um, rebellion. But William of Orange fled the southern Netherlands and um, uh, to Germany and from there at various stages tried to sort of reopen the revolt by military means. That failed until sort of a lucky strike by the smaller sea-based guerrilla and pirate bands called the Beggar Army in 1572 sparked a wave of urban uprisings in the northern 
Netherlands, especially in the provinces of Holland and Zeeland. Those rebellions then gave the revolt sort of a, a military foothold. That led to years of military struggle that pitted sort of the small ragtag bands of William of Orange plus the main towns of uh, or most of the main towns of Holland and uh, and Zeeland against the armies of Philip II headed by the Duke of Alva and his um, subsequent uh, military strongmen sent in. Right. So that, that leads to, uh, to a, a long period of warfare until in 1576, a new wave of rebellions in the southern Netherlands leads to the unification of most of the, uh, of the Netherlands on the side of the revolt. Throughout this period is a very complex mingling of military side of the revolt and local politics, often varying between city and city. Most of the main cities of the north joined the revolt, but for example, the two wealthiest cities of Holland and Zeeland, Milburg and Amsterdam, whose elites felt very, very dependent on uh, trade with the, uh, uh, within the Spanish Empire, refused to take the side of the revolt until the late 1570s. So you get this sort of combination of political, local political factors and military struggles. That goes into an even more intense phase in the southern Netherlands after the unification of uh, 1576, with perhaps the most radical phase of the revolt being a series of uprisings and um, takeovers of power by um, uh, urban artisans and the sort of the middle classes in in important cities in uh, the southern Netherlands, primarily Ghent, which then were faced by a massive sort of counterattack by both the Spanish army and uh, uh, defecting members of the southern nobility who really thought, okay, this, this has gone too far. The outcome of this ultimately is the defeat of the revolt in the southern uh, Netherlands, but at the same time, military consolidation in the northern Netherlands. And something interesting happened there, which was this consolidation, was a consolidation of the state, a very sort of uh, divided federalist state, a lot of sort of local particularism there, but it did have a united army. And pretty soon after that, a united navy as well. And William of Orange played a huge role in countering sort of the earlier, more sort of spontaneous way of uh, fighting the influence of a guerrilla mindset in how the army was uh, organized, the influence of lower rank soldiers, an actual role of urban civil guards in the fighting, which then came together with demands for influence of the urban middle classes. And instead of that, sort of William of Orange entered the state general push for what they see as military professionalization. And by the 1580s, you get into a condition where the independence of the northern provinces has become consolidated. But the struggle increasingly is less that of a sort of a political revolt, 
or religious revolt against central authorities and becomes more a sort of a purely military struggle between a newly independent Dutch state in the north and uh, the uh, Habsburg Empire. What was the attitude of European powers such as France and England that were rivals of the Spanish crown? It's important to see that that, um, throughout this struggle, for all the different parties involved, the revolt is enmeshed in European politics. And once the revolt progressed and the independent Dutch state came off the ground, increasingly also world politics and colonial politics. The revolt represented a shift within the balance of power in Europe, but a balance of power that was extremely tenuous in the first place where the Habsburg Empire was already pitted against important sort of crowned adversaries. So uh, for those adversaries of uh, the Habsburgs, the revolt seemed to represent a golden opportunity that they wanted to grasp without probably sort of um, sharing any of the um, Republican zeal that also developed as part of this revolt. But it's important to see that sort of the, um, that a similar ambivalence was there for the leaders of the revolt itself as well. William of uh, Orange partly fought for his own dynastic ambitions and his commitment to the revolt also rested on the idea of restoring the House of Orange, which was an important noble house within that sort of European feudal uh, power structure. So there were those ambitions for um, for Orange. For a long time, there was ambivalence whether these ambitions could be fulfilled within, let's say, sort of um, a return to uh, to normalcy and Habsburg uh, rule with a clearer sort of agreement on the autonomy and local rights of urban magistrates and uh, uh, large nobility in the Netherlands. And when that attempt failed, Orange, who was very much a um, into realpolitik, <laughs> saw the best option for the revolt as aligning itself very, very closely with a foreign house that could bring in another state into the war against the Habsburg or align the struggle of the Dutch with the struggles of other monarchical uh, monarchical states. So there's two episodes. First, when Orange was still alive, an attempt to uh, align the Dutch revolt to a French noble house that uh, was immediately related to the, the house of the French um, crown, the house of uh, Anjou. So Danjou was uh, the Duke of Danjou was brought in as let's say a replacement sovereign for the Low Countries, and then later something similar was attempted by aligning the Dutch provinces that were then still independent to the English crown by inviting the Duke of uh, Leicester to come over and act as uh, sort of uh, the head of the Dutch uh, Dutch armies and a central figure within the Dutch states. But here you see some of the developments in the social content of the revolt as well, that although 
it would be um, strange to say that anyone planned this as a sort of an urban bourgeois revolution with the aim of independence of a sort of merchant-dominated state. No one would think of the aims of the revolt in those terms in the 1560s. By the late 1570s, early 1580s, that had clearly been put on the cards. So the um, city power was absolutely central to the success of the revolt. City wealth was crucial in funding the continuation of the revolt and the professionalization of the army. And these um, urban um, sort of merchant um, elites or capitalists or or however you, you want to call them were quite willing to accept a figurehead uh, ruler from outside when that helped them against um, against uh, fight the war against Spain and its armies, but were very, very reluctant to give up the kind of sort of independence and political sway that they had gained by that time. So when aligning themselves to the French crown and French nobility and the English crown and, and English uh, nobility, Orange and later the States General invited these ambitious high nobles who expected that in return they would play the role of a substitute king right, within the Dutch provinces. They expected a role on a footing of, uh, of other kings, princes and high nobility in the rest of, um, of Europe. They didn't expect to be treated like officials who had to execute the decisions of urban upstarts. And that created enormous social tensions and political tensions, which led to the quite rapid failure of both the attempt of the French crown through Danjou to gain um, some control over the Dutch provinces and then a similar failure with uh, Leicester. And when that attempt again failed in the sort of an episode of major political turmoil, the States General in the northern provinces basically decided we can go at it alone. We don't need that kind of alliance. And if we make alliances, we'll do so as more or less an independent state or a republic. So that is the foundation of the republic, which occurs at a moment of this great confidence of the northern provinces that they could actually wage war at the level of a major European state. Were there any movements among the popular classes during the revolt that were similar to those which later emerged during the English and French revolutions, the Levellers, the Saint-Colotte, the Enragé? I find that a very important question, especially because the standard answer, I think, in the historiography of the Dutch revolt is a full-blown no, right? It's, it's, and and in, in a certain sense, that is uh, correct, in the sense that there was n- not this sustained and unified sort of political movements of the, 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 the lower classes at the level where you see that in the, the English Civil War or in the French Revolution. And there was also not to the same extent the um, development of kind of sort of proto-communist programs uh, like those of the Diggers or the uh, Arrages and uh, Babeuf's conspiracy. On the other hand, 
as I tried to sketch earlier, lower class rebellion was absolutely fundamental in elevating sort of the oppositional, the various oppositional movements that existed in the low countries in the early 1560s to the level of outright revolt. It was instrumental in creating the new phase of the revolt in 1572 when um, Orange's attempts to basically relaunch the revolt as a, from above as a purely military princely-led affair had failed in the late 1560s. So it's again this lucky strike of taking a small town in the southern in southern Holland, Brill, by guerrilla bands, then turns into a province-wide revolt because in town after town, ordinary people go into the streets and force their magistrates to proclaim that they're for Orange. So there are these crucial episodes, and that is repeated several times in the 1570s and 1580s, where popular rebellion is actually decisive in the continuation of the revolt. In the similar sense, the military struggle in the first phase takes the form of attempts to recapture these um, cities. And it's not regular warfare that defends them, city walls against the um, very, very professional and well-trained Spanish armies. It's total mobilization of the population of these towns, including very often women within these towns who defend the, 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 the walls against professional uh, professional soldiers. So there is this aspect of lower class rebellion, which is very important. And there is also the element of religiously infused expectations that this rebellion will result in sort of the creation of a new Jerusalem fair society in which which uh, which people can have a say. And there, the revolt connects to what has sort of often been called the popular reformation. And the reformation is a many-faceted and also multi-class phenomenon. There was a princely reformation that was uh, pretty conservative in its uh, in 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 its uh, its outlook, um, but against that, especially sort of in the first half of the uh, 16th century, there had been the so-called Anabaptist movements that um, have often been described as proto-communist. They expected the return of Christ was uh, around the corner and would lead to a society that was more equal, more just for lower sort of people. And these then, these uh, millenarian sects also were open to lower class people who were told that they could play a role in interpreting scripture and in sort of in preaching the word to fellow artisans. And uh, and that became a uh, often very radical popular Movement Now, that left a deep imprint in, uh, in my studies of Leiden in the 1560s. Even in the 1560s, the bulk of people persecuted for their um, being religious dissenters, and actually the bulk of people executed for that, uh, were not Calvinists, but were members of some, in some for- way or form, were connected to Anabaptism. Right. So that left a deep imprint influence but but there is a problem to that and that is that the um, 
Anabaptism had gone through its radical confrontational phase in the 1530s with, as a high point, the capture of a German city called Munster, largely by Dutch Anabaptists who had gone there to establish the new uh, Jerusalem. But that revolt was crushed, or that sort of religious rebellion was crushed mercilessly. So mercilessly that um, even today, if you go to Munster, this um, cathedral has the cages still hanging there in which the leaders of the revolt were uh, locked up after the city was recaptured and were led to um, uh, 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 to be eaten by the crowds. So still today, the symbols of the, the defeat are, uh, are there to see. Anabaptism in the Low Countries went through serious crises after that, and the result of that was a turn away from the world to spiritualism and a turn towards pacifism. So as an organized force, it hardly played any role in the revolt because, well, revolts were no longer sort of encouraged in, in that branch of thinking. But in terms of the chiliastic ideas encouraged by Anabaptism, many of them certainly in the early stages of the revolt were still present in some shape or form. So you have these two elements. You have sort of the importance of lower class rebellion, but very much concentrated on particular towns, not as some sort of a national movement. And you don't have a Dutch equivalent of Paris that uh, by its sheer weight and size, where it sort of lower class rebellion could become the focal point of the, of the nation. You had lower class influence on the fighting through all sorts of sort of disassociated rebel bands but you didn't have sort of uh, until uh, actually the sort of the revolutionary phase of the revolt was over the kind of national army in which you could have an army opposition like the levelers so there was this decentered urban outburst of um, uh, lower class revolt that never grew into some sort of an a national force in its own uh, uh, right. And you have remnants of radical ideas rather than the formation of a new challenging ideology that could bind these forms of lower class rebellion. Nevertheless, I think there is an aspect where Kuttner was absolutely right. It's, so it is these sort of explosions from below that made the revolt happen in the very, in the very first place. Looking back for a moment, during the 14th century, Flanders had experienced the most sustained wave of popular rebellion anywhere in Europe. And this was in a century that also witnessed the Peasants' Revolt in England, the Jacquerie in France, the revolt of the Weavers in Florence in the late 14th century as well. Did that leave behind any legacy for the revolt of the 16th century? It absolutely did. I think in some ways a decisive influence when it comes to sort of the uh, unfolding of the revolt in the south. After the reunification of all the provinces on the side of the revolt in uh, 1576, there was a phase of um, radicalization in two directions in the southern Netherlands. One was a radicalization of the counter-reformation and counter-revolution. That is that uh, most of the uh, of the large nobles in the southern Netherlands and the southern Netherlands were the area where were an area where feudalism had much much deeper 
social roots to begin with than, than in the Northern Netherlands. And that much of these nobles thought that sort of the um, city power and independence of these merchants and sort of their influence on politics had gone way too far and it was better to align with the Habsburg crown and with the most vicious and conservative variants of Catholicism around. So there was, on the one side, there was the revolt of the uh, higher nobles who basically joined the attempts to crush the revolution. On the other side, there was a wave of urban uprisings leading to sort of urban revolutionary dictatorships in the sort of the classical sense of that word, where militant uh, artisans um, and their craft guilds, first of all, in, in Ghent, took control over city um, city government. Again, complexly aligned with members of the no- lower nobility and with lower class people, etc. But that sort of urban middle class is taking over sort of control of the city to fence for their autonomy. That is essentially sort of that tradition that goes back to the 14th century. My, my uh, dear colleague from Belgium, uh, Jan Dumoulin, has written about that very convincingly sort of that, that, uh, that long strand of sort of uh, urban um, fights for urban autonomy against nobility as this, you could say, this, this, this rumbling of a sort of newly confident um, bourgeoisie or this, this, these sort of uh, premonitions of the shifting so- social relations in Europe. And this is not sealed off from the Dutch revolt, the last outburst of that tradition before the revolt was 1540, when Ghent went through a major urban uprising and uh, the um, uh, Charles V laid siege on Ghent and actually defeated Ghent militarily and severely, severely punished the population of the city. So resentment against that was still lingering and that tradition was very still very much alive when the revolt broke out and the um, in many ways the sort of the militant face of the revolt in the south in the 15 late 1570s early 1580s can be seen of, as a continuation of that but the irony is that that created probably a radicalism that far surpassed the kind of radicalism that has had existed in the northern provinces but a kind of radicalism that also carried other, you could say, medieval legacies to them, which hindered the success of these revolts on a more sort of on a larger territorial scale. One of them was sort of that um, an intense urban particularism to these uh, dictatorships. So the Ghent rulers really fought for Ghent, <laughs> right, for the city. And for this, for that city's control over its countryside, and for that city's influence over the states, the provincial estates, and with several large cities that went underwent sort of similar uprisings, but also had similarly strong particularism centered around their own city interests, there was very little possibility to create a sort of a, a united a united front against the uh, forces around the Union d'Arras, the, the sort of the uh, the the, uh, the noble counter counter revolution, 
So the strength of these urban revolts also in some ways inhibited the rise of the kind of state structures that could counter the might of the Spanish armies and left these towns to be defeated one by one. In contrast, in the northern Netherlands, especially in Holland, there was also a lot of urban particularism, right? These cities were also fighting for their own interests, also their own interests within the provincial estates and within the state, the state at large. But in some senses, the, the fact that these towns were all relatively small and all relatively weak gave them an impetus to work together that was much stronger than it was for these large, powerful and proud ancient cities of Flanders and Brabant. So it's the collective strength of the Holland towns, but their individual weakness that made it possible or actually forced them to form more or less a coherent provincial whole opposing encroaching Spanish troops. Many thanks to Pepin Brandon for that account of the Dutch Revolt. Part two of this interview in our next episode will explore its long-term consequences. To round things off, here's the earliest known recording of the national anthem that dates back to the revolt. This episode of Long Reads was supported by the Left Book Club. It's a non-profit club with reading groups and events for a list of books that explore radical alternatives to capitalism. You can join the Left Book Club for just £6 a month. That's less than $8. You can also buy someone a gift membership. Listeners to this podcast can get their first month free by going to leftbookclub.com and using the code WINFREE with all letters capitalised.